are listening to Shining Star Community Church English Ministry Sunday Message. Please visit us at www.shiningstar.life. Here's the thing. I, I've been getting a lot of feedback from these sermon series over the past few months. There are a handful of college students that are following along in this series through our website. Yes, we have a website. What's it called again? Shiningstar.life. Isn't that exciting? Not org. No, we're different. <laughs> Shiningstar.life. Make sure you guys... And be, oh, by the way, you can get an app. This is crazy. Don't ask me how you get it, but you can get it. I have it on my phone. I got Jesse to do it for me. So if you want, just ask Jesse to do it for you. Okay? Anyways... So we have a handful of college students who are following along the series of Nehemiah through our website. And of course, we have all you guys who have been faithfully following along from the beginning. <clears throat> but all the feedbacks I've been getting concerning Nehemiah, they haven't been the typical responses. It's kind of interesting. The typical responses I've been uh, getting from other past sermon series, you see, are, are people, they will come to me and say, Pastor David, you know, um, wow, that was just an interesting point you made today, or, or that really affirmed me, lifted me up, and I appreciate that, and I thank you. And, and so typically there's responses from other series I had, like in Acts and Luke, that some of you guys have been through. They were generally upbeat and encouraging and affirming, and there were wonderful responses to my sermons. But during this particular series, I've gotten a couple of those, you know, great job, Pastor David, great sermon, and stuff like that. And I am encouraged, by the way, when I hear that. But really, I've been getting a lot of this. Uh, Pastor, I found your sermon particularly challenging today. Or, Pastor David, I'm having a hard time accepting what you've said today. I was like, wow, you're bold. Why? Why all of a sudden these change in responses? Well, first, firstly, I, I believe that God is convicting them just as he's been convicting me through my sermon preparations. But also mainly because the book of Nehemiah is really unique. It's really unique in that it's all about obedience. Obedience. There is no more kind of theorizing about what God wants. There's no more about, let's just, let's just think about this passage and just try to understand it. And, and No, no, no. Nehemiah is quite simple, but in that simplicity forces us to respond in action, which is what a lot of people find challenging. You've got to respond. You've got to move. It's like saying if you're sympathetic to the poor and you feel bad for those who are you're in poverty, but you don't help them in any way, you don't give to them, you don't support them, you don't help them, then you're not really sympathetic. It's all just for show. Or if you're a huge Washington Wizards fan, but you've never watched a single game, you don't own a John Wall jersey, you have absolutely no care for the playoff standings, then maybe you're not a fan at all. Or if you're a self-proclaimed foodie, but all you can eat are chicken tenders and pizza, then maybe you're not a foodie. Christianity is defined by faith, but faith is often defined by action. You get what I'm saying? In other words, we do what we believe. We commit to what we trust. We sacrifice to the things we love. Faith needs works. Now, we are not saved by works, but works, and in this case, I mean obedience, is the only means by which we can prove that we have faith. 
That's why Jesus is constantly talking about the goodness or the badness of trees are based on the fruits they produce. Or following him means to deny yourself and to pick up the cross. He even tells us in a way that would be impossible to find any ambiguity in. In John 14, 23, Jesus said, He says, anyone who loves me will obey my teaching. Very clear cut. Last week, we talked about knowing that Christ loved and died for the church. Christ, he says, to love one another and commit to the body. And, we'll, and all of us here, you'll hear that from me. I say, commit to the body. Love the church. Love the person next to you. And you'll say, yes, Pastor David. Amen, Pastor David. But the moment we talk about membership or accountability, you know, the practical ways in which to demonstrate commitment to the local church body, that's when we're like, <laughs> I don't know about that. Let me run for the hills. Ladies, if a man professes his love for you, but he's not willing to commit to you, that is no love at all. Despite his modern, and I've heard this, and this is infuriating, despite his modern interpretation of what marriage now is and what the definition of monogamy is, come on. If you wholeheartedly believe in something or someone, you must, you must commit Lack of commitment signifies there is never much belief to begin with. God's work through the people of Nehemiah, his work through the people, was quite evident. So he asked for commitment to obey his word. Commitment means a practicing of faith, not just a confession of it. A practice of faith, not just a confession of it. Don't just say, I believe, or don't just say, I love you. No, show it, prove it, do it. In this passage, God has already established his love. He's established his grace and his mercy upon his people. And he's saying, guys, my children, my people, Israelites, I am all in. I am committed to you. I am all in. You see, God is committing to us. And now in this passage, God is saying, and he's trying to be very real. And in a very practical sort of way, he's saying, now commit to my commitment. Commit to my commitment. In other words, obey my words. You say you're going to accept my commitment. You say you're going to accept me being all in for you. And follow me. The first point that God asks for us to obey is not to marry an unbeliever. In verse 30, it says, We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now, now, here's, hear me out. I've heard many reasons why one should be allowed to marry someone regardless of their religion. But before I talk about specific reasons that we tend to use to justify our intimate engagement with non-believers, let me explain and speak on why God said what he did. You see, when the children of Israel were about to enter the promised land, God, he warned his people. He said, do not marry with the people inhabiting Canaan. In other words, the Canaanites. Why? Because there's something about the Canaanites that God just gave them the heebie-jeebies. The Canaanites were incredibly different than the Israelites. The Canaanites were brutal. They were primitive people. They worshipped demonic things. They loved child sacrifices. They hated anything of God. They wanted to live however they wanted to live, even if that meant hurting other people. People who worship anything but God is an enemy of God. And God is forbidding his people from marrying his enemies. 
Later on, marriage issues progressively got worse and more difficult, especially during Nehemiah's time. The Jewish people were now a minority, whereas before they were the majority, but now they're a minority in a culture that was a part of a great world empire. And so there's integration of everyone and the religions, and it began seeping into the Jewish faith, into the Jewish way of life, into the Jewish people. So the Jews began marrying for all sorts of reasons. They started marrying for the sake of financial gain or upward social mobility. They got married because, you know what, it meant that their families would be taken care of. And despite all the pressures of life, the Lord again and again and again warns his people against intermarrying with those of the surrounding culture. 2 Corinthians 6, 14, 16 says this, Do not be yoked with unbelievers, for what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God has said, I will live with them and walk among them. And I will be their God and they will be my people. I've heard many reasons why a believer wanted to marry a non-believer. Someone once said this. Some lady came to me and said, well, Pastor David, but he's so good to me. And it's hard to find a good man in this world. And I said, you want something good? Dogs are good. They'll never leave you. They'll wag their tails for you when you come home. If you want something good, then just get a dog. But don't let that be the basis of your marriage. I'm sure that many of you want to get married. But here are a list of reasons why I believe that, and according to Scripture, you shouldn't get married to a non-believer. And by the way, this by no means am I stating here that non-believers are terrible human beings, incapable of human emotion and love. Of course not. But these points, I pray and I hope, stress to you, to the person who's looking towards marriage and looking for marriage, that the commonality of faith in Christ Jesus is so much more important than just love or any whatever algorithm eHarmony uses to match people up with. That the faith relationship you and your spouse have will have generational and spiritual ramifications. You see, your marriage is more than just you liking him. It's more than just her liking you or loving each other. It's creating a spiritual legacy that God will look after and use for his glory. It is so much more, friends. Marriage is so much more. Now, some marry for the sake of convenience. Look, I've watched enough Korean dramas to know Despite my limited Korean speaking and understanding capability, when a girl on the show is being pressured by her mom into marrying some rich, young CEO for the sake of a guaranteed future. Solomon, he married Pharaoh's daughter for political advantage. And maybe right now some of you all are thinking, I want to marry him or her because he's got a good job or she's got a good job. There's financial stability. Maybe there's a desperation for something like family, something that you haven't grown up with. Maybe there's something there. Maybe you're thinking biologically, wow, you, me, we make some pretty good babies. Maybe you're thinking that. Yes, of course, there are advantages of marriage. One is being able to procreate by God's grace, but that's not the main purpose of marriage. The main purpose of marriage is reserved for the revealed will of God. You've got to ask yourself, will you and your spouse further the kingdom of God and the glory of God or not? 
You can't do this if your spouse doesn't even believe that there's a will to even strive for. You know what I'm saying? Secondly, what tends to happen when you marry an unbeliever is that you, as the Christian, tend to change and conform rather than your unbelieving spouse. Oh, I've heard it many times, guys. But Pastor David, I truly believe that God has brought me into his life to bring the gospel to his life. And I said to that one individual, how dare you think that God's armor salvation can only extend through you? If you really want someone in your life to know Christ, that is not a marital endeavor, but an evangelistic one. Evangelism does not require intimacy like marriage. You get what I'm saying here? It does not require intimacy. Oh, but Pastor Day, I love him so much. You know what? God loves him even more than you do. He loves him more than you do. Don't you dare try to replace God. You are not helping God's plan of redemption by wedding an unbeliever. You are, in fact, in the way. So get out. Remember our buddy King Solomon? The guy who in 1 Kings 11.1, it says this, Solomon loved the Lord. I wish we could have stopped right there. I wish that would have been the end of his legacy. Solomon loved the Lord. Yes, the guy who called out for wisdom. Man, he's awesome. God's like, I'll give you anything in this world. What do you want? Pretty ladies? You want a bigger palace? What do you want? And he goes, no, I want wisdom to know how to lead my people. And God's like, oh, my baby. I'm so happy you said that. Because you said that, I'm going to give you everything. I mean, that's the guy we're talking about, King Solomon here. And says, Solomon loved the Lord. And we're like, yes, but then dot, 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 next line. But King Solomon also loved many strange women. Here's the thing. It doesn't take that much time to give your heart away to your spouse. It's quite easy to allow their life choices to become your life choices. It's easy to allow what they love become what you love, what they hate become what you hate, which is why when you enter into a union with a believing spouse and they love God and they hate sin, that means you'll love God and you'll hate sin. But a non-believer doesn't know God and therefore only knows the world. It won't be long before you too will begin to worship the gods of the world. Now, I admit, this is difficult. It is, a, it is difficult to accept and understand. But if you even consider, let's say, the hardship that's involved with living a person who likes to squeeze from the top rather than squeeze from the bottom, and something that small and insignificant and simple is enough to bring the fiery fury of marital discontent. Can you imagine living a life with someone so intimate, with someone who has absolutely no clue why you think the way you do, why you do the things you do, why you give the way you do, why you love the way you do, why you resist the things that you do, why you value the things you do? Can you imagine living with someone like that? One is light and the other one is darkness. There are no similarities. There is no common language. One believes that Jesus is risen. The other believes that he's still dead. How do you bring that together? I caution you all in the name of, our, name of our Lord Jesus and for the glory of God the Father and by the power of the Holy Spirit. Marriage is too, too darn important for us to compromise on. It is too important. Marriage is what will make or break you. My father, senior pastor, had always said this to me ever since I was a little boy. He said, David, 
There will be two greatest decisions that you'll ever make in your life. The first is the most important decision, that is this, what you will do with Jesus. Will you accept him as your Lord and Savior, or will you reject him? And the second biggest decision that you'll ever make in your life is this, who you will marry. Why? Why is marriage the second most important question? Because marriage will either bring you to God or away. You see, when it comes to friends, and this is interesting because just the other day, my wife and I, we were, we were walking around this, our uh, little town area, came back from CVS, and we are passing by one of the restaurants, and there's like, um, like tables outside, and all of a sudden, my friend, he, I haven't seen him since high school graduation, and he was one of my best friends, too, and he was like, do you live? I was like, Lord, what do I do? And I was like, Bobby! He's like, hey, what's up? Let's catch up. Da, 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 da. And then, you know, I was like, wife, baby, and then his fiance, and it was just like, you know, very formal and stuff like that. And, and there's a reason why I stopped hanging out with him. It's because I realized, you know what? I was, I was, I was spiritually drifting away. For me, I, I knew at that moment I was spiritually weak, and I need to cut off the ties. I need to remove the relationships that were hurting me rather than helping me. And here's the thing when it comes to friends and, and their bad influence or whatever, you can do that. You can just stop hanging out with them. You can stop calling them. But when it comes to marriage, you don't have that type of luxury because through marriage, you have become one. There's deep emotional and spiritual and physical connection that will be torn into pieces if you separate, which is why God screams out in Malachi, I hate divorce. Not just because for what it is, but because of what it does to his children. That's why we need to yoke ourselves as someone who's willing to submit to Christ and not someone who'll submit to the ways of the world. Be ever so prayerful. Be ever so careful. Be ever so sensitive to the Spirit of God, ever so wise, ever so discerning. And when you take your step towards marriage, you have to be careful. Remember, marriage is not just for you. It's not just for your spouse. It is for the glory of God. Turn to your neighbor and say that. Marriage is for the glory of God. Yes, it is. So that when people see your marriage, they see the grace of God. That when they see your marriage, they see the forgiveness of God. When they see your marriage, they see the love of God. When they see your marriage, they see the truth of God, and he'll receive all glory. Amen? Amen. Another command we're asked to obey is to observe God's rest or Sabbath. Sabbath was made for you and I to rest from the week and be with the Lord. It was given for our benefit to physically rest, but more importantly, spiritually rest and trust in his replenishing power. Sabbath from Nehemiah's day to today has changed from Saturday to Sunday, but more than that, the New Testament teaches us something radical occurred. You see, the New Testament makes it clear that Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath. The Sabbath rest day wasn't just some random law that God's like, you know what, I'm gonna, as if your life isn't hard enough, I'm going to give you this extra law. No, no, it wasn't any of that. God actually put that into place because it pointed to our need of salvation. Sabbath. Have you guys ever worked so hard? Like I'm talking about straight hours, no breaks. I'm talking about day after day. Some of you guys are college students. You guys just got back. You had your finals. I'm assuming most of you guys procrastinated, right? 
And you guys just studied hours and hours and hours and hours. And afterwards, you're probably thinking, I need a break. And for those of you who are professional workers, and maybe your job is just crazy tedious, and you're going through Monday through Friday, maybe even the weekend, Saturday, and you're thinking, I need a break. I need a vacation. You need rest from, from the computer eye, that, from the computer monitor that you've been staring at. You need a vacation so you can stop thinking about work. Here's the thing. Our entire lives here on earth is centered on work. Man must work. We must all toil under the sun, but that doesn't mean that we all need some prolonged vacation, no. Because this work that we, that you and I have inherited from the day we came into the world, it was spiritual. We've been slaving away to the sins of this world. Aren't you tired, brothers and sisters, when you keep following the world? Has anyone here ever tried to climb that corporate ladder? They said, oh, no, if you do this, get these numbers, and you'll, become, you'll get promoted. And you're like, sweet, I'll do it. I work, I'll sacrifice my family and all that stuff to get to that point. They're like, good job, you're, you're promoted to this position. But you know what? If you want a little higher position, you got to do this. And you keep slaving all day, all day. You keep working, you do everything. Pursuing the gains of the world will just leave you burdened and burnt out. And it's been casting this eternally sized burden on us. Salvation, you see, Sabbath is really salvation, which is rest that we cannot gain from our own labor. Deuteronomy 5 more specifically tells us the point of Sabbath because the Sabbath was tied to God's deliverance from Egypt, which has always been the prototype for us in our salvation. Sabbath is a way in which God is saying, I want to deliver you guys. You see the Sunday and all these joyful faces I'm seeing right now? God is saying, I'm here to give you peace. I'm here to give you rest. You know that confusion and all the anger and all the bitterness and all the rage and all the complexities of, of marital, marital issues and, and relationship issues and financial burdens and all the stuff that the world is just caving on top of you, putting on top of you? Right now, God is saying, give it to me. Give it to me. I'll take care of it. Do you trust me? I will take care of it. Do you trust me? I will take care of it. I am rest. I am that physical rest. I am that spiritual rest. I will give you that rest. And he says, I want to deliver you. I want to rescue you through my son, Jesus. We come to church on Sunday to worship because we want to worship the one who reconciled us to our creator. The one who redeemed us from slavery to sin. And now, according to Matthew eleven twenty eight. 28, Jesus, he extends that wonderful, amazing personal invitation. He says, come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. That word rest that Jesus says is Sabbath. We meet on Sabbath day, but rather, we don't meet on Sabbath day as in the last day of the week, but rather on the day of resurrection, which is the first day of the week. And then I end with this, guys. We come to church on Sunday because the Bible tells us in Acts 2.42 that we are to come together, worship God together with other believers, and be taught his word for our spiritual growth. Church attendance is not a suggestion, but it is God's will, as it says in Hebrews 10.25, that we should not give up on meeting together. And though Christ is important, though, I'm sorry, church is important for our spiritual growth, without true rest 
and Jesus Christ as our eternal Sabbath, no amount of church attendance, no amount of Bible study, no amount of life group meetings, no amount of revivals or retreats will give you what you're looking for. True rest is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And over the years, civilizations have changed, people have changed, cultures have changed, but God has not changed. And so our desperate need to find our rest in Him has not changed either. Only in Christ, only in Christ will we fully know rest. Let's pray. Without saying much right now, I want to give you guys an opportunity just to pray. Whatever the Lord is stirring in your hearts, whatever He's saying to you, and maybe if you're not hearing, say, God, speak to me. I know you're there. Holy Spirit, speak to me. I feel your presence. I want to now hear your word. I want to hear your instruction. I want to live a life no longer just professing, but now a life that will actively trust, actively pursue. God is challenging us right now, and that's good. God is disciplining us right now, and that's good. For the Lord disciplines those he loves, and you are his children, those of you in Christ Jesus. He will do everything in his fatherly power to keep you from straying off that path. And these are his commands. Do not yoke yourself with an unbeliever. And come to church to rest in his presence. Don't think of this as some obligatory legalistic check mark of the week. No, come here and know that in Christ Jesus, you will have the rest of all rests. The peace of all peace. The freedom of all freedom. Let's pray.